Tony Parks Podcast, episode number three. It is Friday, May 15th. Happy Friday to you. Hopefully you have a lot of fun plans coming up this weekend. We have plenty to get to today as I will break down to all of you the notable things that you may already know or that you might not know about the 97 and 98 NBA Finals, the stuff that The Last Dance will not tell you. It's been a great uh, documentary. We know it's going to be more bulls angled and stuff like that, but they'll talk Utah Jazz throughout the course of it in certain ways. Um, Things about that series that get forgotten, things about that series that impacted it, Um, that are not always recognized. I will definitely get to that. Uh, Before I get to lifting the curtain, we do that, by the way, every day. Lifting the curtain, I give you a kind of a behind-the-scenes look at some of the history or something that's happened um, in professional sports uh, and all the years that I've had a a chance to be around it. Uh, I have to tell everyone out there, I couldn't be more proud than I am right now. Uh, My wonderful sister is graduating with her master's today. I was... uh, Actually, originally supposed to be in Boston for the ceremony, um, but now it's obviously a virtual ceremony, which is fine. Uh, I'll be watching from home. Uh, this, uh, this is history for our family in the biggest way ever. I mean, it's huge. Uh, she's going to be the first person with a master's. Uh, I was the first person ever in the history of the family to ever even go to college, uh, which was a big deal. My brother was the first college athlete in the history of the family. And my sister was the first female and female athlete ever to go to college. So all of us earned uh, scholarships, but uh, let me tell you, her stuff with leadership and uh, everything she's done with community outreach, it is remarkable. And to see her accomplish what she has with all that she's been through is is really nothing short of miraculous. Um, We kind of have a crazy family dynamic. It would take me forever to explain it. Um, but I have two siblings that have huge age gaps and we all grew up as only children. Um, I didn't even know that my sister existed until 2002. Um, just crazy long story, but yeah, she was eight years old the first time I met her. Um, and it was a complete stunning, shocking coincidence and accident that I had a chance to even, uh, know her in any way. So it was nuts. Uh, it was the most sudden, shocking and emotionally uplifting thing I've ever experienced. And the emotional high was so high that I don't think I slept for about five days. And I'm not exaggerating on that. Like, I didn't sleep for a long time because of just how surreal it was. Um, so sometimes I still can't believe it's actually real, that, that she's actually in my life. Um, so it's been great. And I made sure to fly out and see her every chance I could, saw as many games as I could and events as possible when she was a kid. Uh, I flew out like seven times in one year um, to, to try and make sure... Uh, to just keep her as a very regular part in my life. Uh, She started working like babysitting jobs and stuff when she was like 12 years old. And she was not working these jobs to go buy cool stuff either. Um, She had to grow up really fast as a young kid and uh, had big responsibilities as a very young person. And so after my oldest daughter, Brooklyn, flew away, I saw her deepen her dedication to work with children. Um, those with special needs and to be loving to so many who are less fortunate. Couldn't be more proud uh, to watch who she has become, uh, which has been a beautiful blessing in this world. So congratulations, Tirsa Jones. 
Uh, couldn't be more happy than I am today. A graduate, and she goes with a master's, the first ever in the history of the family. Quick thank you to all of the wonderful invitations to be a guest on different shows. Thanks to Spence Checkets and Brady Clark from The Drive on uh, ESPN 700. Had a lot of fun with them. To Ben Criddle, Hunter Miller, and the crew at ESPN 960. Uh, David Locke and the Locked On Jazz podcast, always uh, a part of my daily listening. Matt Sanchez and the Jazzed podcast, which was a lot of fun. Ajay did a great job on 106.9 The Fan. And uh, Devin Dixon from 97.7 ESPN Radio. It was great uh, to be a part of your shows and have a chance to talk about this podcast and uh, hope to do it again sometime soon. So let's stay in touch. All right, time now to lift the curtain. I take you back to June 3rd, 1998. The Jazz are getting set to play the Bulls in Game 1 of the NBA Finals. Uh, This city was at an all-time fever pitch in anticipation for this rematch. Uh, The bad part for me... And I, like, never missed a game, right? Unless I had a game. Um, The bad part for me, I had to go to my junior high promotion. Did any of you have to do this, by the way? It's like a graduation from junior high. It involves a ceremony and a dance, and it took forever, and I had zero interest in being there, especially with the Jazz playing the Bulls that night. So the weird thing that happened that night, I'm dressed up really nice, which was rare. I rarely had clothes that were you know, the slacks and a nice shirt and things like that. But I cleaned up well. I mean, I you know, uh, it was looking good. Uh, and I'm standing in line to get pictures with this whole group of ours. And one of the moms walked up to our group. She compliments us. She congratulates all of us. Um, and so the group is all mingling. And this woman starts talking to me like I had something to hide or as if I was in trouble. And I don't know if, any of you have ever had that where someone's like asking you a question and you're, you're like, okay, I know the answer to that question, but why, what is the point of asking this question and what, what exactly are you getting at? So she walks right up to me and goes, so are you enjoying yourself? And I'm like, uh, y- yeah. And I lied because I didn't want to be there at all. And she goes, hmm, so curious to know, who are you here with? I'm like, uh, Alicia? point over to her and she's like oh hmm so may I ask how old is Alicia I'm like uh 15 like like we just graduated junior high what kind of dumb question is this like what? I, I was really having a hard time understanding where she was going with all of this she goes okay hmm and just how old are you may I ask I'm like uh 15 she goes oh Oh, okay. So I had never been so confused. I just, I had no idea what had actually just happened. And then my friend Christine, her mom, who was like there to drive us to dinner and do all that stuff, uh, she steps in and says, I think people are confused about your age. You look a lot older with the way that you're dressed. I also had like some facial hair. And like a Pat Riley slick back, I guess you could say at the time. So I didn't realize it, but apparently I did look older than I happened to be at that time. So it was kind of a really weird moment. The only thing I remember at game one live was that I had to look around and through a bunch of people to see the end of regulation and overtime uh, for that game. Uh, and then was just so happy that the Jazz won. And the reason why I had to look through and around so many people is we were at the Olive Garden. I think the one at the Fashion Place Mall, which was lovely. Uh, and so was happy the jazz won. And then on June 5th, I'm excited for game two, right? 
and nervous as I ever could be. I mean, that day I remember saying to myself, man, I think the winner of game two is going to win this series for so many reasons, and I'll get to that later. But it also stuck deep in the back of my mind that I was told that I looked so much older than I actually was when I was dressed up like that. It was just really strange. So my mom finds out from a friend of hers that works in the hotel industry that the media members are all at the Little America Hotel. So my mom decides, okay, she calls me and says, look, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take you downtown. I'm going to take you over to Little America. I'm going to drop you off there and you go talk to people. You go and do whatever it takes to network or, you know, this is your passion. This is what you've always wanted to do. I'm just going to put you there, see what happens. So I was totally excited about it. I put on the same clothes that I had on the two nights before because I remembered that uh, crazy weird experience. My mom drops me off at the Little America Hotel, walks into the lobby. I, I sit down, grab a USA Today and a one-day delayed Chicago Tribune. I remember they had a Chicago Tribune there, and then it was outdated. Uh, so I was really reading the day before newspaper, but they had everything about the Jazz Bulls game one. Sat there all afternoon. No one questioned whether or not I was supposed to be there. I just sat there and waited to see who I would have a chance to talk to. Just trying to get some advice, learn something about what I would need to know as I was, you know, trying to build my career. So I remember one of those newspapers that I was reading that day. It was breaking down how it kind of was the year of those without a title to break through and win a title. They said John Elway finally won the Super Bowl. Dale Earnhardt finally won at Daytona. And now it's the year Stockton and Malone are going to win a title. Uh, Got me so excited for the game that night. But as I sat there reading the paper, a gentleman sits on the same couch that I was on. And I remember like kind of feeling this, you know, someone kind of sitting down somewhat adjacent to me. You could feel the couch, uh, you know, shifting with the cushions and stuff like that. So I remember just trying to be courteous and moving to give as much room as needed. And the couch that I was sitting, I wasn't the biggest couch in that lobby. And all of a sudden, it's David Stern. Sitting down, getting ready to head over to the arena. Now, I knew that the media was staying at Little America, but I didn't know Stern would be there. Now, it's possible that he was staying at the Grand and then came over for meetings or something. I don't know. But he was so good to me. So good to me. I peppered him with all kinds of questions. Uh, And he couldn't have been more graceful, more helpful, more generous. Um, It was really, really special to have that uh, few moments with him there. And he gave me great advice. He just said, learn every part of the business that you can. Uh, Don't just learn one part of the business. Learn as much of the business as you can. uh, And it will help you in, in many different ways. And so... What's interesting is, I mean, I was radio, TV, sidelines, play-by-play, MC, PA, you know, anything and everything, uh, hosting events, um, whatever I thought that I could give myself a, a try at doing, I did. And then I learned that craft as best as I could. And so it meant a lot to me uh, that I was able to take this guy's advice and apply it. So when you see all the different things that I was doing, um, some of that was sparked by David J. Stern. Uh, sitting right there at the Little America Hotel right before game two, um, right there in the lobby. So uh, I always wanted to thank him from the bottom of my heart uh, for that moment. Never got a chance to. Saw him a couple of other times, but, you know, he was busy, I was busy, or, or just we were too far away from each other. But I always wanted to just take that 15 seconds and uh, thank him so deeply from the bottom of my heart. Uh, shortly after that, saw Bill Walton, had a quick interaction, 
Nothing really notable came out of it other than I felt really good about being able to impersonate him. So that's where that happened. <laughs> uh, the coolest guy I met that day was John Sally. Uh, he just talked a lot about, you know, confidence and energy and passion. Um, but the guy that helped me um, as much as anyone, Jim Gray. And I carried a lot of his advice to this day. He was big on, um, you know, not being afraid to talk to people and don't be afraid of confrontation. Um, so I definitely haven't been. And then one thing that he let me know. I remember him saying, well, it was a good sign that I had hunger to be in broadcasting um, because I clearly was right there talking to him in that moment. So he goes, you know, what you're doing right now is, is a really, really good sign. So it was fun. Uh, it, was a, it was a great experience. So my, my mom comes back to the hotel. There I am sitting in the lobby. And at the time she got there, I'm in a conversation with David Stern, John Sally, and Danny Crawford, uh, who was one of the officials for that evening. Um, so that moment, a really big one for me, uh, because it helped with confidence to such an incredible level. I felt even better about the abilities that I knew that I had, uh, to belong in the NBA, to belong in major pro sports. Uh, that was really, really cool. So, um, met up for game two at the triad center with a couple of friends and they did not believe me at all <laughs> about what my day was like. They're like, mm -hmm, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sat next to David Stern. Sure. You did. Okay. Great story, man. All right, let's, let's go jazz. So anyway, really big moment uh, in the very early parts of my desire to be in sports broadcasting. All right, let's talk about what's coming up this weekend, the last dance. Uh, I know um, that these episodes have probably been the episodes most fans in this market have not been looking forward to. Um, I kind of, at the beginning of this, thought, man, I don't know if I want to relive all that final stuff again. Man, that was tough, but... I do think it'll be interesting uh, to kind of find out how the Jazz are presented, how they're talked about, um, the way Michael and Scotty and Phil discuss the Utah Jazz. I'm curious to see that. Um, and the other reason why I went from, I don't know if I really want to see this, to, you know what? I do want to see this. Part of it is um, that this market had it really good for a while. And this, I think, will take me back to some of my favorite days as a sports fan. You know, and then, by the way, if you weren't, you know, alive or, or old enough to really remember the experience of this, you know what, take a look at it and, and hopefully it'll give you uh, maybe some more insight to what that, what that was like in this market during that time. Because there was a span of time, this market had it really good. I mean, the Jazz were a legit contender from 95 to 99. Utah was in the Sweet 16 in, in 96, Elite 8, 97. They were in the driver's seat with a 12-point lead in the championship game against Kentucky in 98. Uh, BYU football had a great 96 year. Uh, it's just very rare that a market with one pro sports team, one major pro sports team, and two non-Power 5, if you will, college teams, could be at a fever pitch for such a long time. Uh, but we were right here in this market. So I'm excited for it. Michael and the Bulls have done some laughing and scoffing at several former uh, opponents during the documentary, What like Isaiah Thomas, Clyde Drexler, Gary Payton, to name a few. Um, I thought that I would throw out this uh, um, uh, Twitter poll, and I said, what do you think the reaction will be from Jordan and the Bulls about the Jazz? 65% of you said you thought they would have a similar reaction. 35% of you feels like uh, that it will be, you know, mad respect uh, for that team. I personally think that they'll, they'll bring up the Carl Miss free throws. They'll bring up the comment from Pippen about how the mailman doesn't deliver on Sunday you know, the steal in game six and 98. But other than that, I, I do think they'll have a great respect for the Jazz. I, I get that sense uh, that they'll have respect for the Jazz as competitors. And, and maybe maybe I'm wrong. Hey, 
If I'm wrong, I'll walk that thing back first thing next week. Um, but I, I can envision them having great respect for John, great respect for Carl, great respect for Jerry, and then uh, in the end talking about you know how they were the better team, sure, and, and that they came through and that they won it. But I don't see them with the same response as they did Gary Payton, uh, John Stock or John Stock, uh, Gary Payton, Isaiah Thomas, and you know, let's say uh, the way they reacted, say Clyde Drexler or something. I just I don't see that. I don't envision that. Um, but if I'm wrong, like I said, I'll I'll be the first one on here Monday, um, backing that one up. So here's what they will not talk about during the final episodes of the Last Dance in the 1997 NBA Finals. The Jazz got handled by the Bulls in Game Two, handled. But in their other three losses, games one, five, and six, they led for 129 of the 144 minutes. They faltered far too often in the game's most important possessions. Far too often. Now, we remember those possessions, but what people forget is the Jazz led for such a crazy majority of those games before faltering there at the end. So they were very capable of playing at a level um, that that was realistically a possibility to beat the Chicago Bulls. They will not talk about the fact that the Jazz played really well throughout a lot of game one. Sometimes uh, Some people, and I, I think you can make an argument, that they outplayed Chicago for more of game one. Um, but they lost that game. They executed really well for so much of that game. They had a stretch in that first quarter where I thought they were starting to execute well, and they missed nine straight shots. Just missed shots. Um, that happens in the game, you know, and didn't think they were bad shots. Didn't think anything like that. Just missed shots. I remember Brian Russell having some great looks at three, just didn't get it to go down. Um, and some of that happened while Chicago in that first quarter, uh, was just trying to find their footing a little bit. And the jazz led by just one after the first, which of course made your stomach feel very hollow because anytime you felt like you had a chance to, to pounce on that team, maybe, uh, you knew you needed to take advantage of it. The other thing they won't show uh, is a really big swing on a couple of calls in game one. And no, officiating is not the reason that they they lost that game. Um, but Stockton had an angle and a step on Jordan. Jordan cuts him off. Stockton runs right into him, causing what should have been a no-doubt blocking call and an and one. Instead, a bizarre charge, just a bizarre charging foul. Uh, later in the game, Jordan barrels over Stockton, no call. Uh, then they hit a three-pointer later in that possession. So it's, you know, no, it's not the reason that they lost that game. But every inch feels like a mile when you're playing against a team that's 171 and 29 in two years. So, yes, every call feels so big. Uh, we know the biggest reason they lost, though. Carl missed the free throws. They'll show that. Um, and Jordan makes the jumper to win the game. You leave the door open to get beat by the game's best player. And... Well, you know how that's going to go. So the Jazz get handled in game two. There really wasn't much of a story uh, of game two. And it actually looked more like the series we thought it was going to be. I mean, the the Jazz were in that series and people were excited around here. But let's do remember, the Jazz were kind of a notable underdog. More because of what the Bulls were. Not not because the Jazz just weren't a good team. And the Bulls were, this was a rare, rare situation when you look at just how good this Bulls team was. So the Jazz bounced back in game three with a dominant performance. They led by 25. Carl was great. And while it felt like the Jazz weren't out of it, you still didn't feel like they had a real chance to win it until game four. Game four is where it got real because the Jazz were down, started to get late. 
They'll show the Stockton still, the rebound, the long pass to Carl, maybe the Russell dunk at the end. Uh, they won't tell you that it was like, I think it was like the second lowest scoring game in NBA Finals history at the time. Uh, and the Jazz kept Jordan off the foul line for the entire game. They won't show that. Uh, only the 16th time in his career that that had happened and only the second time in his playoff career. So, side note, by the way, about that uh, game four, um, the Jazz had a really weird relationship with Sunday games on NBC. And this is where my really weird memory starts to jump in and, and do crazy things. I remember they had lost four out of five games on Sunday on NBC and all of the losses came on a buzzer beater. Every one of them. It was crazy. So working backwards, game one of the finals, Jordan hits that game winner. Uh, Eddie Johnson, game four, West finals. Shaq hits the hook shot uh, in a game at the Forum in April. And Gary Payton hits a baseline J in overtime back in February. And so the Utah Jazz, the other part people didn't remember is that, that Gary Payton baseline J in February, that's the last time they had lost at home. The last time they had lost at home. It was crazy. And that had been about four months before the flu game. Four months before this historic, iconic, you know, legendary game. The flu game, game five. And they're going to show Jordan walking in and Marv Albert saying, and Jordan is suffering from flu-like symptoms. They will not tell you that the Utah Jazz hadn't lost a home game in four months. They were 45-3 and three in that building that year. They had a 23-game home win streak. They had lost just once in a span of six months at the Delta Center. And they had a 16-point lead and were rolling in that first half. Rolling. And then the Jazz lost focus on offense. Had a few breakdowns on defense. And credit the Bulls. They had a stretch where they just hit some shots. They really did. And before you knew it, the lead was not just gone. It was to Chicago. Chicago had like a mild lead there in that first half. And then Utah took a three-point lead going into the break. Also, Utah had this thing in the series. They won't talk about this for sure. Uh, Utah had this thing. They were converting about 50% of their pick and rolls into points in the first half, which was just great work by the Jazz. You know, I mean, that's a really good rate. And then Phil Jackson does a great job in second-half adjustments, and that number was usually like 25% or lower in the second half. And that, that was... Enormous. I mean, Phil's defensive adjustments were tremendous uh, in that game five and then also uh, really in the series as a whole. Uh, there were two major swing plays in this game. Late in the first half, Brian Russell misses a three-footer right at the rim. It was like a weird fast break. Stockton gets into the paint, got clogged up. He hands it off to Russell. Russell kind of jumps over everybody straight away, didn't have an angle at the basket, missed. coach nails a quick three-pointer on the other end and Early in the fourth quarter, Stockton had a great look out of the corner for three. Shot was right on line, barely long, and I think if they hit it, they go up nine or ten uh, with about ten minutes to go or so. And I, I just remember thinking, you know, a ten-point lead or a nine-point lead always felt so much bigger in those series just because, you know, just the way how tight uh, those games were being played. Uh, the Bulls throw a long-court pass. Kukoc hits a right-angle three. And the timely plays by Kukoc had as big a role as any in that flu game. That game five, Tony Kukoc hit big shot after big shot. And two of them that he hit came after the Jazz had barely missed a shot that would have made a really big difference uh, in that key moment. And so Kukoc's three wasn't just a three. It was like a five or six point swing. 
uh, which obviously is an enormous deal in a game that ends up being decided by two. So they're going to show Jordan hitting the three, and here's Jordan for three. Yes, Michael Jordan. And the the Bulls take an 88-85 lead in the late moments. What they're not going to show you, Carl Malone failing to box out Tony Kukoc on the missed free throw. Brutal. Because when Jordan hit that three, it was actually a four-point play. He split free throws. Carl doesn't box out. And then Brian Russell, for no reason, I still have no idea, doubles down on Scottie Pippen and leaves Michael Jordan wide open. Just two of the 10 egregious mental and physical mistakes that Utah made. All unforced, by the way. Self-inflicted. The others before that, Stockton and Hornacek, each with a bad turnover. Malone inexplicably shooting a couple of off-balanced Hand in the face, fade away. He did this weird sideways jump. I mean, all while Rodman is fouled out of the game and Carl has a mismatch with anybody who's guarding him. It was crazy. And in the final moments, Malone doesn't foul, down one with 15 seconds left and having three timeouts. And so the Bulls got a dunk with like six seconds left and it really hampered Utah getting into the score and foul game uh, late in regulation. And I thought Jerry was going to kill him. He was so upset. Oh, the Jazz went uh, uh, for a, there was like a seven and a half minute stretch down from like 747 down to 15 seconds left or something. And the Jazz scored one field goal during that window of time. Just one. And so the Jazz, you know, the story will be about how Michael Jordan fought through the flu and how heroic he was. And he was, there was no doubt. He was so great. But equally as big in that game was I thought Utah blew it. They blew it. That was the most fragile situation any Jordan team has ever faced in the finals. Even more than 98. Because if the Jazz win that flu game, Chicago faces two elimination games against a team that's now beaten them three times in a row. And Chicago had never, ever lost three times in a row in those 96 and 97 years. That's how good they were. They didn't lose three games at all uh, in a row to, to a mixture of teams, let alone the same team. The Bulls also never faced two elimination games in a postseason series during those championship years with a fully acclimated Jordan during those runs. So, yes, every bit of it was Jordan, the flu, and him being great. And every bit of it was absolutely Utah having a chance to seize real control in that series, and they blew it. They blew it bad. Now, the MVP... Visibly choked. I thought Carl Malone visibly allowed the moments to get to him. He started doing stuff he never does. This weird, like, step back, shuffle foot, hand in the face, fade away. It was absolutely ridiculous. You could see in his body language, even the way he's moving, that the moment is taking him over. And he's he, he didn't handle it well. And he was the MVP. I mean, at the end of the day, in the biggest games, biggest moments, you got to be good. And he was terrible, actually. And it was, a com- it was a collective effort because other mistakes were made, but he obviously was the MVP. We know what happens in game six. They'll show that uh, as the Bulls go on to win. Kerr with the jump shot. Uh, they will not show Scottie Pippen grabbing onto the rim in what should have been uh, um, called a, a goaltending call. And then uh, Shannon Anderson had a couple really big missed layups uh, there in that fourth quarter. Heading into the 1998 NBA Finals. In the previous 25 years, every time two teams met up in back-to-back finals, the team that lost the first time came back to win the second time. 
It was crazy. It was a total of five times. It happened exactly like that two times after as well. So seven out of eight, by the way, in a huge window of like 30-whatever years, uh, the team that loses the first time wins the second time, except when Jordan's involved. Uh, so when The Last Dance talks about the 98 finals and when people remember the 98 finals, they kind of remember just game six. That's what they talk about, and that's what gets remembered. And it was a great game. Pretty well played, obviously dramatic, historic for many reasons. But game six was actually the exception to the rule because many of the games in that series were not really well played and neither team played like themselves during most of that postseason. That's the other thing people are going to forget. People remember the Jazz swept the Lakers and had nine days off. They, they might show that in the dock, but what they're not going to show is that, and, and by the way, that was, I mean, man, that sweep in the Lakers was incre- uh, incredible. Maybe the best I've ever seen the Jazz play, but what was hard is that the Jazz hadn't played all that well in the first two rounds. They really didn't. The Jazz came into the finals with an 11-3 and record, but the concern that was there was that they had real long stretches of not playing the way that we were accustomed to see them play because they were the number one offensive team in the entire league and then barely got by the Rockets in five. Houston had them down double digits in, uh, for elimination in game four. Uh, The Jazz came alive in the second half and then held them off in game five, but the offense still wasn't what we were used to seeing. Utah was held to 11 points below their normal offensive rating for the series. Yeah, 11. Then the Spurs, oh my goodness, the start of that series, they had a shot to win game one. And I think Duncan missed a bank shot. It was a one-point game and Duncan missed a bank shot. Game two, Jackson has a great three-point look. Uh, to win game two in a tie game. He misses, they go to overtime, Jazz win. And you just, they were, the Jazz were up 2-0, but they just didn't, they didn't have that championship level look. The Jazz no-showed badly in game three for some reason, and then bounced back to win the series in five games. So, you know, you're 11-3 and three after sweeping the Lakers, and people are thinking, what's the worry? They look great. Well, they look good against the Lakers, but that was about it. That was the only series where I thought they looked like a championship team. Uh, Chicago came into the finals. They beat the Pacers in a dogfight seven-game series, and the last dance is going to show that. But the Bulls weren't playing like themselves for most of the playoffs. Uh, The last dance showed some of those close games and even the loss to the Hornets, right, in those first two rounds. Um, But they also had their defense fall off drastically in that series against the Pacers. That was a really big concern for Chicago. Uh, They won that series because Indiana was horrendous with defensive rebounding. That's what saved Chicago in that series was that the the defensive rebounding issue um, for Indiana was just, it constantly hampered them. So going into the finals, the question I had was, which team was going to play most like themselves? Because neither team looked like themselves uh, for most of the postseason up to the finals. So even when the Jazz won game one, I was incredibly concerned because the Bulls appeared to be making this a defensive series. The Jazz shot 0 for 8 from three-point range that night. Uh, They scored just 12 points in the fourth quarter, and they couldn't put it away with their offense when they had a chance on several occasions. We know about the Stockton clutch plays, and the last dance won't show that Brian Russell, by the way, was unreal with some big-time hustle plays, effort plays, it actually made an enormous difference. It was He was the, uh, the unsung hero uh, from game one. I definitely remember that. 
And so you go into game two and you're thinking, all right, if, if you started to wonder if it was just rust for the Jazz and fatigue for the Bulls, you hope that's the case because then the Jazz could hit their stride and the Bulls are still dealing with fatigue having a game just 48 hours later. So that's why going into game two that night of June 5th, I really felt like the winner of that game was going to win the series. At the time, I didn't feel like the Bulls could beat the Jazz four out of five times, which was one of the reasons why, especially if the Jazz were 4-0 against them up in that year up to that point. And that's if the Jazz had won game two. So game two just felt like the winner was going to take the series. And so that night, the Jazz played a better offensive game. They hit like seven of their first 10 three-pointers. But a play took place that was as big as any in the entire series. I'll never forget this. And it never gets talked about, by the way. It's always forgotten, and I guarantee the last dance will not show this. The sequence was an interesting one. You know, it was under two minutes left. Stockton takes the ball down the court on a fast break, turns around, hits a trailing Jeff Hornacek. He hits a three to give the Jazz a one-point lead. That was actually the loudest I had heard the Triad Center out of all the games I went to. I went to uh, 97 games three and four and then 98 game two uh, when I had a chance to go out there. And by the way, great atmosphere, a lot of fun. The Jazz got a really big stop on a long possession. So here they are. They've got this lead. They get a huge stop, even though they gave up an O-board. And Stockton hurries it up the court. You can feel the momentum as the Jazz are. It feels like they're going to, you know, take off here at the end of the game and make the big plays. Stockton splits a double team on the left side of the floor. And he had the option just to dump it to Shandon Anderson for kind of like a a soft three-foot toss. And Shandon dunks it, and they would be up by three. And instead, he throws a skip pass for Russell in the corner. So he goes for Russell in the corner. Tony Kukoc intercepts the pass. Now, Stockton might have thought that Kukoc was going to close down in the paint, and then Russell would be open. And instead, Kukoc faded back and was giving Stockton the handoff to Anderson for the dunk. So Stockton turns it over, and it was a oh, it was a really big turnover in that moment. Kukoc throws the ball down the court for uh, uh, Steve Kerr. Steve Kerr gets it, and Stockton makes an incredible effort to get back down the court and contest what was a right-angle three from Kerr. Stockton races all the way down, puts a hand up. Kerr misses the three, and on the play, Stockton stops and watches the play. He didn't box out Kerr. And Malone, who had five fouls, didn't go all out for the rebound. And Kerr ended up with a rebound he never should have had. Never should have had. Kerr splits Stockton and Malone and grabs the board, runs right underneath the basket, hands it off to Jordan. Jordan gets fouled for an and one. That play was so big. That was as big as any play in that series, in my opinion. As big as any play. It changed everything. Oh, my gosh. And when I think about all the plays that, that hurt the Jazz and their miscues and, and all of that stuff on, on how the Jazz fell short of not winning the title, that one in Game 2 in 98 is the one I'll never forget. Ever. Uh, so the Jazz are now down two points. Not enough time to play two for one. I think it was like, I, I forget how much time was left, maybe 32 seconds. So Malone gets a feed from Stockton. About 20 feet from the basket, right angle. Has space to drive, has an angle to get to the hoop, has a mismatch with Kukoc uh, coming over. And he pumps, steps back, and shoots that glorious hand-in-the-face fadeaway jumper that he usually missed in those final series against Chicago, especially late. 
And I love Carl as much as anyone, but he shrunk during some really big moments, and that was one of them. That was definitely one of them. Uh, it wasn't just because he missed shots. It was the decisions that he made, and it was just the fact that he had a ton of miscues when looking at a lot of mental errors. If it was just missing shots, that's life. You know, it's, If you're open and you shoot it and you miss, oh well. Um, and I love Carl as much as anyone, but man, those were really, really big moments. Uh, I left that night after game two fully believed that the Jazz were not going to win the series. I just knew it. And not just because it was tied and Chicago had home court now, but because the Bulls were dictating the terms. And Utah's offense, which had been a problem earlier in the playoffs, those problems were back. Except now, uh, they were against a team that you probably wouldn't be able to survive against. Like, you can survive Houston that year not being your best, right? Because they did. You can survive San Antonio not being at your best. But if you're not at your best against Jordan, you lose. If you are your best against Jordan, you still might lose. But if you're not at your best as a team, all five, it's over. It's done. Forget about it. And I could not believe it. I was so infuriated uh, that a lot of these problems we saw earlier in the postseason, they were back. And I don't know how much of it had to do with maybe Hornacek having uh, uh, the flare-up on the Achilles. I don't know. But I remember going into that series initially thinking, man, Rodman's hurt. The Jazz have nine days off. You know, home court advantage. Like, all of the things you would ever want to have it all lined up to give you the best chance to beat Jordan was everything you could ask for. Dogfight seven-game series for Jordan in Indiana. Jazz with the number one offense. All this rest. Man, alive, man. And they just... It, it was tough. The Jazz did not get back to playing the way they usually did. The last dance won't show you that the Jazz gave up 39% of offensive rebounds to the Bulls in Game 2. Uh, this became a problem for Utah as they did the exact same thing in Game 4, uh, which is the biggest reason they lost that game as well. But one of the forgotten plays in Game 4, notice how I'm totally skipping over Game 3, uh, was when Utah was down to, on defense, a minute to go, a missed shot comes off the rim from the Bulls. Stockton grabs it, full head of steam, two on two, maybe fast break. You know, Stockton's moving it up the court, seeing if they can get something quick. And the officials called a foul on Carl Malone for hooking Dennis Rodman. And Rodman, of course, hooked Malone first. <laughs> but they, they catch Malone. Huge call in the game. And, of course, I was mad about it. But what I was really mad about was Rodman. 55% free throw shooter. You're thinking, okay, at best, he's going to split this. At best. And amazingly, he made both free throws and five in a row during the game. Five in a row for a four-point lead. Oh, I was so upset. I was so upset. I'm like, man, this guy can't hit a bull in the ass with a handful of sand, and he makes five in a row. Huge moment in game four. Um, Stockton flat out missed a layup with about 30 seconds to go. They were playing two for one, down four, and Stockton got into the lane, Got right to the rim and missed a layup. Went on the opposite side of the rim and, and just missed it. And just like that, it was over. Jazz were down three games to one, and it didn't look like it was going to happen at all. Uh, the biggest reasons they lost game four, defensive rebounding was awful. Again, uh, in the last seven minutes, the Bulls either went to the free throw line or scored a field goal on every possession except one. And Malone spent over 10 minutes of that fourth quarter without shooting the ball. Insane. Like, some of the game's most important minutes. Just didn't shoot the ball. Uh, didn't attack. Didn't have what you wanted to see from a guy who had won the MVP the year before and then won it 
uh, the year after that. So the Jazz rally to win game five with Malone's 39. The last dance uh, will show you that. And boy, I tell you, Carl was unreal in that game. That was that was really, really special with the way he played. Um, but the last dance won't show you that Jerry Sloan in the second half went with Antoine Carr on the floor. And going with Carr more often uh, was starting to open up Utah's offense more than it had been in the series. Utah was finally starting to get back to who they were on the offensive side of the floor. So it wasn't just exciting that the Jazz got another win in the series and that they stayed alive, but that second half finally started to look like the Jazz team that we all knew throughout the whole year. One issue continuing to hurt them at the time, defensive rebounding. They were giving up way too many offensive rebounds. So heading into game six, in NBA Finals history, 2-3-2, when they did the 2-3-2 format, before and after this 98 series, when a team was up 3-2, heading on the road for game six, every time they lost game six, they also lost game seven. So game six was certainly fragile, to say the least. I mean, that was, that was really, really big. Uh, and we all know about Scottie Pippen and the back issue. They'll talk about that uh, during the last dance. Antoine Carr did not start game six, but played about 27 minutes of that game. And Utah had by far their best offensive game overall in the series. They cut Chicago's offensive rebounds way down to 17%. So some good things are happening here. Here we go. This is, this is kind of what we were hoping we would see from the Jazz at the start of this. But the problem was the Bulls had the best player in the history of the game, and they played their best game of the series on the exact same night. Tough break. Absolutely tough break. You know all about the Bavetta calls, the Jordan Steele, the Jordan push, uh, all of that stuff. The last dance will certainly, certainly show it all. But that game six, what was frustrating about game six was Utah was finally starting to get back to who they were. So I remember a, um, a good friend of our family. Uh, she's a big NBA fan, big basketball fan, all of that. And I remember after the Jazz lost that series, I was frustrated about how poorly the Jazz had played. And she goes, you know, uh, the Jazz didn't lose. The, you know, Jordan won. And I said, game six. I'll listen to game six if you give me that. I'll, I'll listen to it. But not the whole series. Because Utah's offense in that series was the lowest when looking at points per game by any team in NBA Finals history. In the shot clock era, I should say. The Knicks the next year became the only team to be lower the following year. That was it. So it was the next season, the Knicks were lower than the Jazz, and they have been 1-2 and two on the lowest points per game in NBA Finals history in the shot clock era ever since, even. So it included the lowest scoring performance in any game of the shot clock era up to that point when they lost game three, 96-54. And for whatever reason, the Jazz, three times in that postseason run, their game three was just atrocious. And, it, and I can't figure it out. I don't know if it was the travel. I've got no idea. But their game three was really, really bad. <laughs> Just you shake your head at it. Utah's offensive rating was number one in the NBA. Their rating in that final series would have ranked them dead last that year. And yes, it was against a great team, and that's part of it. But going from first to worst comes with self-inflicted wounds. And so that's why it's crazy that game six is what's remembered most of the 1998 NBA Finals. But it was the game that was the least like the other five. The 97 NBA Finals was a really well-played series. 
and the Utah Jazz simply got beat by the best team all time that was a combined 171 and 29 over two years. Whereas the 1998 NBA Finals was a poorly played series for the most part, and the team that was the mild favorite with home court advantage played well below their capability. So both series had the same teams, same faces, same names, same amount of games. 1997 was decided by who was better. 1998 was decided by who was worse. Thanks again for listening to the Tony Parks Podcast. Thanks uh, for going down uh, memory lane with me as well. That was a lot of fun. Uh, If you like what you heard today, give it a great rating. And feel free to email me, TonyParks801 at gmail.com. Drop me a message if you have any questions or comments. And uh, if you're interested in sponsoring this kind of content, let's talk. Everyone, have a great weekend. And uh, remember, B is for Brooklyn. And this has been the Tony Parks Podcast on the Utah Podcast Network.